Chapter Twenty Nine, Part Two of In the School Room. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the School Room by John S. Hart. Chapter Twenty Nine, Part Two, An Argument for Common Schools. In our own country, the same pains have not been taken to collect statistics on this subject because comparatively little controversy about it has existed here to call forth inquiry we as a people have generally taken it for granted that popular education lessens crime and pauperism still facts enough have been recorded to show the same results here as elsewhere when an educated villain is convicted like munro edwards or professor webster the fact becomes so notorious by means of the press that it's unconsciously multiplied in our imagination and we think the instances more numerous than they really are we never think of the scores of obscure villains that are convicted every week all the year round a quotation or two from the facts which have been recorded will be sufficient to satisfy us on this point in the ohio penitentiary out of two seventy six inmates nearly all were reported as ignorant and one seventy five as grossly so in the Auburn prison new york out of two forty four inmates only thirty nine could read and write in the sing sing prison no official record has been made on this point but the reverend mr lucky for more than twenty years chaplain of the prison is obliged by the prison regulations to superintendent and read all the letters between the prisoners and their friends in this manner he becomes personally acquainted with the condition of the convicts in regard to education he reported a few months since to the writer of these pages that while there are always some among the convicts who have been educated yet the great mass of them are stolidly ignorant there are usually between one and two hundred learning to read and this does not include the half of those who are unable to read as the attendance upon the class is voluntary the accommodations are meagre and most of the prisoners are indifferent to their own improvement not five in a hundred can write otherwise than in the most clumsy and awkward manner and with the grossest blunders in orthography and not more than two in a hundred can write a sentence grammatically out of the seven hundred then in prison only three were liberally educated and two of these were foreigners throughout the state of new york in eighteen forty one the ratio of uneducated criminals to the whole number of uneducated persons was twenty-eight times as great as the ratio of educated inhabitants in view of the facts which have been given and which might be multiplied to almost any extent it is not easy to avoid the conclusion that mere intellectual education has some power to restrain men from the commission of crime assuredly ignorance and sin are natural adjuncts and allies schools undoubtedly cost something the community that undertakes to educate the masses or the individual that undertakes to educate his children must expect to have a serious bill to pay it's a pernicious folly to inculcate the contrary the advocate of popular education who tries to persuade people into the experiment under the assurance that the expense will be trifling misleads his readers and puts back the cause which he would fain put forward but there is a most significant per contra in the account and on this there is no danger of dwelling too much nothing is so costly as crime 
and no preventive of crime is more efficient than education schoolhouses are cheaper than jails teachers in books are of better security than handcuffs and policemen there are educated villains it is true but they are rare and they attract the greater attention by the very fact of their rarity but go into a prison or a criminal court or a police court and see who they are that mainly occupy the proceedings of our expensive machinery of criminal justice nine-tenths of those miserable creatures are in a state of most deplorable ignorance degraded sensual with no knowledge of anything better than the indulgence of the lowest passions without mental resources or any avenue to intellectual enjoyment they often resort to crime from sheer want of something better to do when dr johnson was asked who is the most miserable man his reply was the man who cannot read on a rainy day there is profound meaning in the answer the man who has been educated who not only can read but has acquired a taste for reading and for reading of a proper kind is rarely driven into low and debasing crime he has resources within himself which are a counterpoise to the incitements of his animal nature his the awakened intellect and conscience also make him understand more clearly the danger and guilt of a life of crime many of the deeds which swell the records of our criminal courts spring from poverty as every criminal lawyer well knows and there is no remedy against extreme poverty so sure as education the old adage says that knowledge is power it is also wealth a man with even an ordinary common school education can turn himself in a hundred ways where a mere ignorant boor would be utterly helpless the faculties are developed ingenuity is quickened the man's resources are enlarged an educated man may be tempted to crime but he is not driven into it as hundreds are daily by mere poverty or by an intolerable hunger of the mind for enjoyment of some kind schools then especially schools in which moral and religious truth is inculcated are the most powerful means of lessening crime and of lessening the costly and frightful apparatus of criminal administration schoolhouses and churches increase in the land jails and prisons diminish as knowledge is diffused property becomes secure and rises in value a community therefore is bound to see that its members are properly educated is for no other reason in mere self-defence the many must be educated in order that the many may be protected a great city is just as sacredly bound to provide for its teeming population the light of knowledge as it is to provide material light for its streets the one kind of illumination equally with the other is an essential part of its police no matter what the cost the dark holes and alleys must be flooded with the light of truth before which the owls and bats and vampires of society will be scattered to the winds a great city without schools would be a hell a seething cauldron of vice impurity and crime no man of sound mind would choose such a place for the residence of himself and family who had the means of living in any other place if we could suppose two cities entirely equal in other respects but in one of them a superior and costly system of free schools while the other spent not a dollar upon schools but depended solely upon the rigors of the law and the strong arm of avenging justice for restraining the ignorance and corrupt masses can there be any doubt which city would be the safest and most desirable place of residence whatever view of this subject may be taken in other countries we in this country are shut up to the necessity of popular education 
we at least have no choice. Universal suffrage necessitates universal education. If we do not educate our people, educate universally, educate wisely and liberally, we can hardly expect to maintain permanently our popular institutions. The man's vote, who cannot read the names on the ballot which he throws into the box, counts just as much in deciding public affairs as yours, who are versed in statesmanship and political economy. He is a partner in the political firm, who can neither withdraw from the firm yourself, nor can you throw him out. In the absence of general education, this tremendous power of suffrage is something frightful to contemplate. The greatest despotism on earth, says de Tocqueville, in an excited, untaught public sentiment, and we should hate not only despots, but despotism. When I feel the hand of power lying heavy on my brow, I cannot to know who oppresses me. The yoke is not the easier, because it is held after me by a million of men. The danger from this source is intensified by the immense immigration from abroad which is going on, and which bids fair very greatly to increase. The great majority of those who seek our shores come here ignorant, with little knowledge of any kind, and with no knowledge whatever of the nature of republican institutions, these men, almost at once, are my sharers of the popular sovereignty, with all its tremendous power of peace and war, order and anarchy, life and death. Not to have a system of public education, by which these ignorant and dangerous masses shall be enlightened, and shall be assimilated to the rest, and to the better part of the population, is simply suicidal. Our national life hangs upon our common schools. Besides this great political consideration affecting the interests of the entire party politic and the question of the success and stability of our national institutions, there is another consideration of coming home closely and individually to each man's personal interests. Where the law of trial by jury prevails, every citizen, whether educated or ignorant, takes part in the administration of justice. Twelve men taken indiscriminately from the mass of the people, or if with any discrimination, taken more frequently from the lower walks of life than from the higher, are placed in the jury box designed upon almost every possible question of human interests. The jury decides your fortune, your reputation. The jury says whether you live or die. Go into a court of justice. Are there light matters which those twelve men are to determine? Look at the anxious faces of those who estates, whose good name, whose worldly all hangs upon the intelligence of those twelve men, or of any one of them. What assurance have you, save that which comes from popular education, that these men will understand and do their duty? Who would like to trust his legal rights or his personal safety to the verdict of a jury of Neapolitan Lazzaroni? In a few short years, the idle boys who are now prowling about the streets and alleys of our towns, the wolf rats of our cities, will be part of our jurymen. Is it of no consequence to me whether their minds shall be early trained and disciplined, so that they will be capable of following a train of argument, or of comprehending a statement of facts? How is it possible to administer justice with any degree of fairness and efficiency with the majority of those who are to constitute the jurymen and witnesses are stolidly ignorant. By common law, every man has a right to be tried by his peers. Let law then provide that those shall, in some substantial sense, be my peers, on whose voice my all in life may depend. 
but let us recur once more to the economical part of the argument when a community is taxed for the support of common schools the question naturally rises among the taxpayers is the system worth the cost does the community by the diffusion of knowledge and education gain enough to counterbalance the large expense which such education involves even if this question could not be answered in the affirmative it would not follow that common schools should be dispensed with common schools are needed as the best and cheapest protection against the crimes incident to an ignorant and degraded population common schools are right and proper because without them the majority of those created in the image of god will never attain to that noble manhood which is their rightful inheritance but the argument will receive additional force if it can be shown that general education increases the wealth of the community that education does have this effect is evident i think from two independent lines of argument first an intelligent educated man is capable individually of achieving greater material results than one who is ignorant secondly the general diffusion of intelligence through a community leads to labor-saving inventions and thus increases its producing power in regard to the first line of argument some curious and instructive facts were collected a few years since by the late horace mann his inquiries were directed to the efficiency of operatives in factories a class of men who would seem to require as little general intelligence as any kind of laborers it was found that as a general rule those operatives who could sign their names to their weekly receipts for money were able to do one-third more work and to do it better than those who made their mark nor is this at all to be wondered at there is no kind of work done the aid of human muscle that's purely mechanical mind is partner in all that the body does mind directs and controls muscle and even in emergency gives it additional energy and power no matter how simple the process in which an operative may be engaged some cultivation of his mental powers is needed without it he misdirects his own movements and mistakes continually the orders of his superintending workman a boy who has been to a good common school and has had his mental activities quickened and whose mind has been stimulated and roused by worthy motives not only will be more industrious for it when he becomes a man but his industry will be more effective he will accomplish more even as a day laborer than the mere ignorant boor when we come to any kind of skilled labor the difference between the educated and the ignorant is still more apparent an intelligent mechanic is worth twice as much as one ignorant and stupid many years ago a very instructive fact on this point came to my own personal observation a gentleman of my acquaintance had frequent need of the aid of a carpenter the work to be done was not regular carpentry but various odd jobs alterations and adaptations to suit special ones and no little time and materials were wasted in the perpetual misconceptions and mistakes of the successive workmen employed at length a workman was sent who was a german in the kingdom of prussia after listening attentively to the orders given and doing what he could to understand what his employer wanted michael would whip out his pencil and in two or three minutes with a few rapid lines would present a sketch of the article so clear that any one could recognize it at a glance it could be seen at once also whether the intention of his employer had been rightly conceived and whether it was practicable the consequence was 
that so long as michael was employed there was no more waste of materials and time to say nothing of the vexation of continued failures michael was not really more skilful as a carpenter than the many others who had preceded him but his knowledge of growing gained in a common school in his native country made his services worth from fifty cents to a dollar a day more than those of any other workman in the shop and he actually received two dollars a day when others in the same shop were receiving only a dollar and a quarter he was always in demand and he always received extra wages and his work even at that rate was considered cheap what was true of michael in carpentry would be true of any other department of mechanical industry in cabinet making in shoe making in tailoring in masonry in upholstery in the various contrivances of tin and sheet iron with which our houses are made comfortable in gas fitting and plumbing in the thousand and one necessities of the farm the garden and the kitchen a workman who is ready and expert with his pencil who has learned to put his own ideas those of another rapidly on paper is worth fifty per cent more than his fellows who have not this skill the example of this man was brought vividly to my mind at a later day in delphia when an important educational question was under discussion rembrandt peel had two dreams each worthy of his genius one was to paint washington which should go down to posterity the other was so to simplify the elements of the art of drawing that young boys and girls might learn it as universally as they learn to read and write he spent long years in maturing a little work for this purpose no bigger than a primer or a spelling book and a determined effort was made on the part of some of the friends of popular education to introduce the study into the primary public schools of philadelphia it was introduced into the high schools but its benefits were limited to a comparatively small number the hope and the aim of the friends of mr peel's project were to make the study an elementary one to make a certain amount of proficiency in growing a test of promotion from the lower schools to the school above it this would have placed graphics alongside of the copy-book and the spelling-book after struggling for several years with popular prejudice the friends of the scheme were obliged to abandon it as hopeless the idea was too much in advance of the times could the plan have succeeded and could the entire youthful population of that great city which is pre-eminently a mechanical and manufacturing centre have grown up with a familiar practice skill in the use of the pencil in ordinary off-hand drawing such as our friend michael had there can be no question that it would have added untold millions to the general wealth if every boy and girl in that great metropolitan city were now obliged to spend as much time in learning to draw as is spent in learning to spell and at the same age that they learn to spell i do soberly believe that the addition to the wealth of the city by the increased mechanical skill that would be developed would be worth more than the entire cost of our public schools although they do cost well nigh a million of dollars annually what is true of drawing is true of every branch and accomplishment necessary to a complete education a man is educated when all his capacities bodily and mental are developed and a community is educated when all its members are now if we could imagine two communities of exactly equal numbers and in physical circumstances exactly equal as to climate soil access to markets and so forth and if one of these communities should tax itself to the extent of even one-fourth of its income 
in promoting popular education while the other spent not a dollar in this way there can be little doubt as to which community would make the most rapid advances in wealth and in every other desirable social good we happen to have on this subject one most striking and significant record in sixteen seventy the english commissioners for foreign plantations addressed to the governors of the several colonies a series of questions concerning the condition of the settlements under their charge one of these questions related to the means of popular education the answers of two of the governors are preserved one of them the governor of connecticut ruled a territory to which nature had not been specially propitious its climate was bleak its coast rock-bound its soil blessed with only ordinary fertility the other territory virginia had an extraordinary amount of natural advantages it had fine harbors numerous navigable streams a climate more temperate by several degrees than its rival the soil in its lowlands and valleys unsurpassed in any of the plantations for its capacity to produce wheat corn and tobacco its mountains filled with untold treasures of lime iron and coal and it now seems with petroleum also and with all that wonderful variety of natural resources which seems best suited to stimulate and reward the productive industry of its inhabitants the governor of the less favored colony replied to royal commissioners as follows one-fourth of the annual revenue of the colony is laid out in maintaining free schools for the education of our children the policy thus early impressed upon the colony has been maintained with steadfast and almost proverbial consistency to this day that region being known the world over as the land of schoolmasters the governor of the other colony replied i thank god there are no free schools no printing and I hope we shall not have this hundred years. To this policy she also had until lately only too faithfully adhered. Now what is the result? By referring tables accompanying the census of 1860, we find the following significant facts. First, the average cash value of land was not quite $12 an acre in one commonwealth, Virginia, and a little over $30 an acre in the other second one commonwealth sustained only five inhabitants to every hundred acres of her soil the other sustained eighteen inhabitants to every hundred acres third the value of all property real and personal averaged by the population was in one commonwealth four ninety six dollars to every inhabitant in the other nine sixty five dollars to every inhabitant fourth the value of all property, real and personal, averaged by the acre, was in one commonwealth less than $26 to the acre, in the other more than $177 to the acre. To which facts I may add, what is true, though not in the census, it was the invention of Eli Whitney, a travelling schoolmaster from Connecticut, that has trebled the value of land in nearly every southern state. I have been endeavouring to show that popular education though it is expensive, tends to national wealth. The argument is that an educated population is capable of producing greater material results than a population uneducated can produce. The example of Eli Whitney, just referred to, suggests the other line of argument, which I shall now notice briefly in conclusion. This second argument is 
that the general diffusion of intelligence in a community tends to quicken invention and leads to the discovery of those scientific principles and of those ingenious labor-saving machines by which the productive power of the community is so greatly multiplied the cotton gin the steam engine the sewing machine and the reaping machine would never have been invented in a nation of boers it's not asserted that every boy who goes to school will become an inventor but it is as certain as the laws of mind and matter can make it that inventions abound in a nation in proportion to its progress in science and the general spread of intelligence among the masses multiply common schools and you multiply inventions how much this latter increase man's producing power and so add to the aggregate of human wealth it is needless to say the invention of watch alone had quadrupled the productive power of the whole human race the aggregate steam power of one single country great britain equals the muscular capacity for labor of four hundred millions of men more than twice the number of adult males capable of labor on our planet its aggregate power throughout the earth is equal to the male capacity for manual work of four or five worlds like ours the commerce the navigation the maritime warfare the agriculture the mechanic arts of the human race have been revolutionized by this single invention not yet a century old the application of scientific truths to the common industries of life is becoming every day more and more a necessity the village carpenter no less than the builder of the niagara suspension bridge makes hourly reference to scientific laws the carpenter who misapplies his formulae for the strength of materials builds a house which falls down the properties of the various mechanical powers are involved in every machine every machine indeed it has been well said is a solidified mechanical theorem the surveyor in determining the limits of one's farm the architect in planning a house the builder in planning his estimates and the several master workmen who do the carpentry masonry and finishing are all dependent upon geometric truths bleaching dyeing calico printing gasking soap making sugar refining the reduction of metal from their ores with innumerable other productive industries are dependent upon chemistry agriculture the basis of all the other arts is in the same condition chemical knowledge indeed is doing for the productive powers of the soil what the application of steam has done for the increase of mechanical power the farmer who wishes to double his crops finds the means of doing so not in multiplying his acres but in applying a knowledge of the laws of chemistry to the cultivation of the soil already possessed even physiology is adding to the wealth of the farming interest the truth that the production of animal heat implies waste of substance and that therefore preventing the loss of heat prevents the need for extra food which is a purely theoretical conclusion now guides the fattening of cattle by keeping cattle warm fodder is saved experiments of physiologists have proved not only that change of diet is beneficial but that digestion is facilitated by a mixture of ingredients in each meal both these truths are now influencing cattle feeding in the keen race of competition the farmer who has a competent knowledge of the laws of animal and vegetable physiology and of agricultural chemistry will surely distance the one who gropes along by guess and by tradition 
a general diffusion of scientific knowledge saves the community from innumerable wasteful and foolish mistakes in england not many years ago the partners in a large mining company were ruined from not knowing that a certain fossil belonged to the old red sandstone below which coal is never found in another enterprise twenty thousand pounds were lost in the prosecution of a scheme for collecting the alcohol that distills from bread and baking all of which might have been saved had the parties known that less than one hundred part by weight of the flour is changed in fermentation but it is not necessary to multiply illustrations suffice it to say in conclusion i hold it to be a most manifest truth that the general education of a community increases largely its material wealth both by the direct effect which knowledge has upon individuals in making them individually more productive and by the increased control which the diffusion of knowledge gives to mankind over the powers of nature a nation or a state is wisely economical which spends largely and even lavishly upon popular education end of chapter twenty nine part two